Good evening, everyone. So thank you for the, your effort. We're going to read about effort first. <laughs> uh, so I will share. So let's read in this order, Anne, Donna, Kim, Nancy, Nelda, Peg. Okay. And um, so, <coughs> Anne, the effort of preventing. So we're going to read the questions and um, talk about them as we read them and then um, go on to the next chapter. So, are, so, so we're reading the reflections and practices? Yes. yes. So you already read the other part of the chapter last week? Okay. All right. Um, reflections and practices, right effort. Week one, the effort of preventing. This week, reflect on the states of mind trains of thought, desires, and intentions you commonly experience that you would be better off without. Under what circumstances are these most likely to occur? What do you need to avoid in order to lessen the likelihood of these occurring? In what appropriate ways can you avoid the circumstances that tend to bring them up? Choose to avoid one thing this week which you know is a catalyst for the arising of unskilled states in you. Notice the benefits and costs of practicing avoidance. What do you learn about yourself through doing this practice? So I can think, can I, I can think of one, one thing that I've been um, preventing recently, and that is eating all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can anyone else think of anything that, in terms of a prevented effort? Uh, spending time on social media. Yes. I gave up smoking as part of taking the precepts, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty big one. <laughs> it was, it's, yes. it's, it's still hard, but yes, that's a big preventing. <laughs> yeah. And we don't normally think of as effort as preventing something, more as doing things. Yeah. So I, I think that's a good contribution here. Okay, who's next? Anyone else? Anything? Well, I wanted to say one thing that last week when we were talking about this in our group, uh, Matt uh, came up with uh, an alternative preventing or stopping um he talked about letting go which i thought was um mm -hmm. i liked that a lot yeah. uh-huh how would you differentiate That's... between letting go and preventing well, preventing's you... got kind of a pushback a negative you know, the negative energy at least for me associated with preventing and stopping but letting go I don't know, has a, has a different energy or feel to it for me. Yeah, I think one is based on avoidance 
And the other one um, is probably closer to what uh, he's going to talk about as the effort of overcoming. So by letting go. Um, and that uh, this preventing is you, you know, like you're quitting smoking. You don't, um, you don't buy cigarettes, for example. You don't have cigarettes around the house. Um, so there, it's difficult to access them even. So that's preventing. And then uh, overcoming is when, you know, when people are trying to quit smoking and they like put a rubber band on their uh, wrist and they snap it, you know, when they have the urge to have a cigarette, that's a more of a kind of overcoming and, um, and letting go then. So that's how I think of it. Anyway. That's, that's my sense. As being more positive. What? As be, uh, that it's more positive to be letting go than preventing. Well, it's a different action. So in, in, for example, if you wanted to avoid eating sweets, um, the prevention is to not have them in the house. And the uh, overcoming is the um, practice of you have them in the house and you practice withholding so that you're, you're letting go of the urge. You're not just keeping it, preventing the thing from arising. And the question, the skillful issue isn't one is better than the other. The skillfulness part is knowing which one you're going to need. Mm -hmm. So if, if you want to strengthen your resolve and you sense that you might weaken, then prevention might be your better bet. Um, but if what you want to do is strengthen your capacity to withstand um, temptation, then um, prevention isn't going to be that, that helpful. Okay. What about renunciation? How does it play, play into this? Well, no, there's a lot of misunderstanding about renunciation as being what an ascetic does. Yeah, no, it's just about letting go of attachments. It's like, um, and any of these might might be considered part of renunciation. So it's it, it's these are skillful ways of releasing attachments, and when you relinquish attachments, that's renunciation. Okay. So, so, so there's all these four ways. So one way is by preventing, one way is by overcoming, one way is by arousing um, mind states that are, um, that, that are in opposition to the ones you don't want to have, right? So that they can't coexist together. So uh, for example, loving kindness can't coexist with anger towards someone. So, um, so, so you can work on that arousing or maintaining that. So you, you're in a long-term a uh, relationship like a marriage, um, you're working on maintaining that quality of connection. Um, does that now, make sense? Hearing this, I'm seeing that my, my naive version of effort is just trying harder, trying harder, trying that's harder. That's right. And, and, and that's what he's trying to break down here a little bit is that is our naive assumption that you just have to try harder. So if you want to lose weight, you just have to try harder. You know, you just, the reason you're not losing weight is you're just not trying hard enough. And, um, and that's conditioned thinking. And I mentioned, I think the other, the other day about a friend of mine, uh, her teacher said, you know, when she got a C on an, on an exam, you'd, you'd, you didn't study in the right way or something, you know, you have to change the way you're studying as a, yeah. you didn't have enough effort, which is typical. No, no, that's different. 
I know, I know. It's yeah. and and that's typically what teachers say. You didn't try hard enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those two, you didn't try. Uh, you weren't smart enough in the way that you tried. I don't even think that's what was implied. What was implied was you didn't have the skillful means that were necessary to study in the way that would have given you success with this. So, um, so a person might go to a you know. Um, um, services, study services, and, and learn skills of note-taking or outlining or whatever. Um, so that may be more about skillful means than it is about effort. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you Peg. This, that, that clarified a lot. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, who's reading? Reading is your turn. Oh. Uh, choose to avoid or are we on the next one? Next one. In addition, twice during the week, spend a two-hour period of time <coughs> practicing safeguarding yourself at the sense doors. This is the practice of staying attentive enough to, to the stimulus you receive that you can avoid reacting negatively. When you perceive a sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch, that could trigger an unskillful mental state. Recognize clear, clearly what you are perceiving while also watching yourself. In this way, you can avoid getting involved with unskillful reactions to what you are experiencing, experiencing through your sense doors. This practice is most satisfying when it safeguards a state of mind that is peaceful, loving, or otherwise beneficial. So this is um, also, I think, what he's saying here is related to Dogen's famous quote of to study the Buddha way is to study the self. So you're studying how your um, senses are um, creating a reaction and uh, you're studying that reactivity and how it becomes unskillful. So you watch the news, you become depressed, you know, you, uh, or outraged or whatever. Um, so, so you're guarding the sense doors by saying, you know what, I'm only going to watch maybe uh, 20 minutes of news a day or whatever. You're um, in that way preventing, but you're noticing, oh, this is, what's, this is what I'm reactive around. This is what's bringing my blood pressure up or whatever, you know, so like right. physiological responses. I had a conversation with a pedophile and he was describing that process that they were trying to train them in, which sounds a lot like this. Yeah, it's, they're probably using CBT, which they often use for behavioral issues. And um, it depends on willingness. I mean, I think when uh, Hogan was working with sex offenders and um, serious sex offenders in prison, eventually he had to stop doing that work after about 15 years because he said there were there was no motive to change. And all they would talk about is that they were going to do it again when they got out. Mm. And without any motive to change, you don't have any basis for working with them really. Yeah, this, this was someone who was already out obviously. And, and, and uh -huh. so, so they, the benefit was to change was not going back in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who's there for an indefinite time, I can see that there's no motive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, week two. Week two. Yeah. Week two, the effort of overcoming. Consider the following questions this week. When you're experiencing an unskillful mental state, what are your preferred ways of overcoming it or causing it to go away? Are your methods healthy or unhealthy? Do your strategies come from wisdom or from aversion? How does your wisdom cast light on the practice of overcoming or abandoning unskillful state? I think this is a really hard distinction, actually. I mean, he makes it sound like it's really easy. You just decide it's wise or it's not wise, you know? But I think mm -hmm. it's actually quite difficult when you are shifting a mind state intentionally to know whether it's coming from aversion or whether it's coming from, you know, this sort of skillful wisdom. So I don't think it's that easy to say um, which one is, which way the method is, what the strategy comes from unless it's pretty extreme. So, you know, like if you're drinking to drown your sorrows, for example, but, um, but I think there are more subtle cases where, let's say you say, I'm just not gonna watch the news at all. That's a version because then you're not actually informed about anything. So it's complicated a little bit by uh, what we consider would be wise way of overcoming unhealthy mind states. I was wondering too, Farv, it's like we were so good at deluding ourselves into thinking, oh, this is a really wise course of action because it's what you want to do or something. What you want to do, exactly. And then, so you can think of all these reasons why it's super wise. And, and I think this so. is why it's important to have spiritual friendships and spiritual teachers because it's a check against your own, um, you know, sort of uh, self-interest and deluding yourself about that. So um, everyone is subject to self-delusion and people in positions of power and authority even more so because they're more likely to be surrounded by people who confirm their own views. Um, and they're more likely to believe that their views are warranted because they have a position of authority and power. So, so it works both ways. You know, we both, um, we both work with teachers, but we also are, um, aware of whether the teachers are themselves operating from a place of delusion. So there's nothing, um, I don't think there's anything really truly that simple about the spiritual path. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot more depth to it and a lot more layers to it as we practice. Yeah, okay. Notice when you are thinking unskillful thoughts, for instance, thoughts of resentment, ill will, greed, covetedness, frightening imaginings about the future, or negative opinions about yourself or others. Once you notice them, practice letting these thoughts go. Apply skillful means to stop these trains of thinking. If you can't stop them, Try to distract yourself from these concerns. When you are no longer having the unskillful thoughts, notice how not having the thought feels different than having them. How does this affect your overall ability to think and evaluate wisely? So that means you really do need to be attentive to your own thought processes and notice what uh, what aspects of them might be unwholesome. 
does that get easier over time? Because no, uh, no, it doesn't get any easier over time because you're working with more and more subtle distinctions. So ah. in the beginning, it's just a blunt object, you know, like um, uh, we, we recognize sort of the most um, obvious unskillful thoughts. Um, and we can't even always stop ourselves from acting on them. Uh, but we recognize, we start to recognize, oh, yeah, that was bad. Or, oh, I never should have said that. Or, you know, um, we start to recognize the, in the, at sort of what I consider the sort of gross level. And then it gets more and more subtle. And you begin to realize, oh, this is an ongoing learning path. We're always going to be studying this. And we're always going to be learning more and more subtle distinctions in the ways that we interact with other people. And, uh, and that's beneficial. It is. It is to know that. To know that it's unending is beneficial. To know yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it, we have a, you know, a lifelong learning program, it's called, you know, our, this path. And I, I, I actually, I appreciate that about it. I wouldn't be that interested in something you could just learn and then that's it. You've got it. It's, that's not that interesting to me. But that we can keep examining what's, what's going on in our own heads, what's going on in our own hearts, and what's going on in our own bodies, and learning more and more. Um, that, I think, is important. Okay. Hey, the effort of arousing. Uh, <coughs> I think it's Peg. It's me. The effort of arousing. Well, this is good. This week, make a list of three emotional states or attitudes that you think are worthwhile for you to cultivate. Uh-oh, I have to go take a puppy out. Someone else has to take this paragraph. <laughs> I'll be back in a minute. And my next, because I could just start, yes. I'll just read this, and then we could just keep going. Yeah. Um, what are the circumstances that tend to evoke these emotional states or attitudes in you? And <clears throat> these are three emotional states or attitudes that you think are worthwhile to cultivate. Um. In what circumstances is it appropriate to intentionally arouse them? What wise ways do you know for arousing these states and attitudes? When is it beneficial to do this? And when might it be counterproductive? Can anyone think of an example there? I could not think of any time that it would be a... Um, I, there would be a bad time to cultivate a worthwhile attitude or emotion. I. Well, I've been uh, one. I've been having this practice of trying to be really, really nice to spam callers. And part of the reason for it is just a personal reason that I don't want them to interfere with my state of mind. But if I get angry at them, that's going to like carry over. But would, would that be an example? Um, so I'm not willing to evoke this emotional state that I was doing before. Besides which, um, I'm just not willing to go there and be angry, or, you know, or, or mean or anything like that. I just... <laughs> Can you think of a situation where it would not be worthwhile to be with these spam callers to be nice, not be nice? Well, someone was talking about about 
how do you treat the neighbor? I mean, assuming you think that 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 a certain uh, presidential candidate is an evil person, how do you treat your neighbor who has a sign in their yard? And it might this person, this certain person I was talking to, thinks it, it you shouldn't be nice to them. You should really put your foot down and say, you know, you're really hurting the, you're really uh, hurting people, and you're. There's no need to like form a connection with them. That's their argument. But that seems so unskillful to me, because nobody likes to be judged. And once they've got a sign in their yard, they're they're standing in a certain spot on the um, political realm. And and how can you cultivate what this is asking you this week? Make a list of three emotional states you think are worthwhile for you to cultivate. How can you, I, I, I mean, that seems so against the path for me. Why not continue to be kind to them? Why not continue to talk with them? Why not continue to honor them? I, I agree. I guess I think, like in the case of spam callers, what if by being nice, that was like encouraging them? And so at some point, but I could see you could, you could be very firm and have a boundary and still be very nice and kind. One doesn't, you know, one doesn't eliminate the other. And with a sign, yeah, I guess that's a, I guess that's one approach is to not be nice. But um, I, I don't know where that, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily that fruitful, let alone skillful. But anyone else can think of something? I, I well, just, I don't know if this is helpful to you with spam callers, but for example, those people who call, and, and I remember this, because both the woman at the other end and I laughed. It just came out of my mouth, but apparently it was a good thing because we laughed. Someone trying to sell me a new phone plan, and I said, no, I'm very happy with X plan, and she went on to, to say, Oh, but it's so expensive compared to our rates. And it just came out of my mouth. I said, you know, it's like being a member of the Democratic Party. Sometimes it's a little more expensive, but it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and she cracked up. And I said, that's how I feel about my phone company. She said, all right, thank you. Have a good day. Because, you know, I don't have to explain it to anyone. And she got it that sometimes that's just how it is for the, the opinions we hold about certain things. So. I mean, I guess my point is we waste a lot of emotion on some of these situations in our life where things aren't the way we'd like them to be. Yes, but you know, I don't know. Let me take a breath and, and use correct words. Good emotion is never wasted emotion. Yeah. Is any emotion good or bad? I mean, positive, positive, supportive, loving, kind expressions. You're, uh, you're correct. I don't like good, bad. But I, I'd much rather say good morning to someone than you know curse at them. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. That's that's what I mean. I that never feels like a waste of emotion to me. Well, some some emotional states can kind of ruin your day if you if you allow yourself to engage in them. 
for what is they're coming at you with a weapon. It's interesting because in the precept study, there was a chapter on just that, or maybe it was a book I was reading alongside. And, and I don't, that's not personal, but you do have to protect yourself. Yeah. You don't have to stop that. So, you know, um, it depends on the weapon. If, it, if, if the weapon is, you know, a BB gun, I'm not going to pull out a semi-automatic, <laughs> but, um, Hopefully run first and then, no, no, no. There are appropriate actions that, that are actually loving because our lives are precious too. So I see that as a, a loving act to save my life in order to continue to try to do some good in the world. Um, it's just a proper measure of um, pause for them. Yeah, but I think Anne's asking about emotion, oh. not action. Oh, emotions? Oh, I thought you said an, a, a, a weapon. Well, well yeah. maybe I was mixing it a little bit. Yeah, but you could have a weapon. You could defend yourself against a weapon and not, you know, be filled with rage and hate. You guys, I just got a note from my son, and I need to scoot. I apologize okay. for oh. leaving early, but thank you. Oh, yes. yes. I'll have to listen later. Okay. Here, where this cover, where this interesting thread leads. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Um, take good care. Thanks. See you soon. I hope. Nancy or Donna, do you have any ideas about? Um, these remind me of um, some. Uh, so there was sometimes that I um, felt a little bit sad because of something happened. Um, in my daily uh, life. And then suddenly one of my friends called me and she told me about her, like, some, her problems, like the, the hardship that she experienced. And then just in certain, it, it um, evoked my loving kindness and care for her. So all of the bad feeling, like the sadness I have disappeared. It's just like really, a good feeling of like I need to listen closely to this person and I try to have her somehow. Yeah. So I think that can consider is some circumstances that you can evoke the emotional state um in you, the one that you want to cultivate. <laughs> okay, who's reading? Uh Donna? Who would be next? Yeah. Um, I guess it's choose one skillful state. Is that where we are? Yeah. Yes. Choose one skillful state and spend an entire day cultivating it. This could be, for example, friendliness, joy, compassion, gratitude, generosity, calm, or equanimity. Plan ahead by picking a day when you know you'll have time to actively focus on this state. You might prepare by creating some reminders on post to help you keep quality in mind by selecting some short reflections and readings to look at throughout the day. At the end of the day, assess what you learned by regularly cultivating the state over the course of a day. 
You know, what, what I keep thinking about is how he talks about that we have this ability to choose how we're going to feel about something. That we're not just, uh, that we just don't go through life uh, reacting without thinking. You know, that we can think this way or we can think this way. And that's really cool to me. Well, um, I've forgotten the name of the last book that we did. I guess it was about the one about the Brahma Baharas. And um, it, it seemed like one of the points of that book was that with practice, you really could you know, uh, develop to the point where that was your, you know, sort of the basic state or orientation you would have. Um, you know, you, you, you would have the joy, you would have the equanimity, the love, um, you know, metta, and forgotten the last one. <laughs> um, the, I, I, you know, our, our practice would seem to lead us to believe that we can cultivate these states to the point where they are kind of our baseline states. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily a Mahayana or if that's really more in, in the Theravadan tradition or you know maybe the, the methods to get to those, those, um, those levels of, um, of depth. But I don't know, but it, they certainly, you know, Buddhist practice seems to be about not just being able to respond to what comes at you, but also that you have developed your, your inner capacity to, you know, meet the world in these very um, open, calm states. You just need to practice harder, Kim. <laughs> I'm just thinking that it, it seems like you're saying two different things. That's quite possible. <laughs> One is the equanimity. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a something yeah. put on before you go out. Oh no 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 no! I, I, I can, but it's, um, it's not a it's the Brahma You know, I mean, remember cultivating those Brahma Baharas and all those, you know, the, uh, first meditate on this and meditate on this and just the, yeah. Okay, so you 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 wake up in the morning. You do your Brahma Viharas, you're in this like bulletproof state, and then you you engage with life. Well, except that I think that that there's a residual quality that and the more you do these practices, you know, you're not starting at zero every day. That you know your levels of equanimity, your levels of meta, they all build up through time, and it and it did seem like from that book that it was you know first you worked on meta, then you worked on this, then there was joy, and then last of all here comes equanimity. Um, we're talking about the Brahma Viharas and uh -huh. how and the uh, you know cultivation, you know that these are qualities that we can in fact cultivate 
to um, allow us to meet its meet life with a certain amount of grace. <laughs> yeah, there is a kind of a sequential quality to them, um, I think, anyway. Uh, but, uh, but just the practice of them, just sitting in meditation, inhabiting that, um, expands our capacity for it uh, in the rest of our lives. So, so it's a good practice. So what, but what I'm thinking is, you, if you were equanimous, you might not even have to make that choice when the spam caller calls you that I'm not going to react, I'm not going to go overboard, I'm just going to say thank you, thank you, but I'm not interested and not. So you would already be in this pretty good place. And so, I mean, he's talking about a lot of making this choice at any given moment. I'm going right. to this way or this way. And I'm saying you, sometimes you don't even need, you could be at such a place that you don't even need to make that choice. Well, it's, yeah, it's the, uh, it's that, that's kind of the paradoxical thing is that there isn't any choice. There's just the right thing to do at that moment. So, um, it, what, what does it come out of? Does it come out of our conditioned reactivity or does it come out of some other place? So, um, you know, it's like the, um, the story I sometimes tell about getting stopped by the police officer for speeding. Um, and it's not just equanimity. It's a question of how you meet. So it's a spam caller. Um, one of the things you can say is, this is a really hard job, I know. I'm not going to be able to talk to you, but I know this is a hard job. So now you've shifted a little bit into uh, not, not self-centered view, right? So when you're, uh, when you're not preoccupied with how should I be in this situation, which is whether you say I want to be loving kindness or I want to be, you know, like there's a certain self-construction there. This isn't about constructing a self. So first of all, you have to recognize the situation. So you're in a situation. Um, and what's the situation? And who am I in this situation? Is less important than how does the situation unfold? Does that make sense? Well, that's where last time you were talking about the difference between the precepts and the um, Eightfold Path. And it seems that's more of a precept thing in terms of the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we certainly make effort in relationship, but does that effort come out of our self-construction? What I want, what I need, who I need, want to be in this relationship, uh, why isn't this person satisfying my needs or whatever, um, to this place of what enables us to grow and learn together? And so we have the, um, well, we have the question, why are we doing this? Like, so, and with, with the- What do you mean by this? What's the reference for this? Why are we doing this? What this? Why are we exerting this effort? Why are we making oh. choices? Is it, is it simply so that we are seen as being better people? Or, it, you know, like what you're talking about in terms of uh, the spam caller, it, um, 
it brings the world together. We have a vow. Yeah. But this is not based on the vow, what we're reading. No. Um, but it is about um, training our minds and our hearts uh, to be available for that vow. So when uh, we're, the effort that we're making is the effort to see in every situation, how does, how does my vow move me? It's like, that's the music. We're just the instrument. So there's no sense getting all preoccupied by it. You know, you're not the composer. You're not the musician. You're the instrument. So how, does, how is the vow moving me is a kind of different question than what do I want to be or what do I want to have happen or um, does that make sense? Yeah. So I was thinking earlier today and I wrote something to Nicole about the idea that this, the precept ceremony was also a ceremony for the precepts to keep them alive. Oh yeah, absolutely. To keep them alive and to keep them um, in the consciousness of the community. So that the community is continually reminded, oh yes, this is what we're about. Oh yes, this is what we're about. I think that's very important. So I would say that um, the vow is like the music that comes through us, but all of this work, the Eightfold Path, is about making ourselves into a good instrument. So, the, so that the music is clear and um, appropriate. So it's not an end in itself, which it could easily be taken as. Right. It's not an end in itself. But you can see how hard it is to come from vow if, you're, um, uh, if you don't have right view or if you don't have you know, right mindfulness or if you don't have right livelihood. You can see how hard it would be, right? So what we're in essence doing is uh, um, freeing ourselves from the hindrances that prevent us from being a good instrument for our own vow. Okay. We All right. Where are we? I, mi I missed my part, so I'm not sure where we are. Want to read week four, the effort of maintaining? Week four, the effort of maintaining. Do you want me to read that? What are some of the causes and conditions that lead you to lose touch with skillful mental states? For instance, if you're calm, how do you lose that calm? If you're happy, what causes it to fade? If you have goodwill for others, what undermines it? In contrast, what supports the continuation of these skillful states? What values, priorities, and intentions do you have that can support the continuation of skillful states? Which ones undermine them? Choose a skillful state that you value and that you can easily evoke. This could be being relaxed before doing something that makes you anxious. It could be evoking curiosity to investigate something rather than prejudging it. Or it could be bringing forth a basic friendliness when in a gathering of strangers. Establish the skillful state just before entering a situation in which you, will know, you know it will be challenging to maintain the state. Experiment with making an effort to keep the state going throughout the situation. Afterwards, reflect on the effort you made. What can you learn about your effort? Was it wise? Were you able to find an appropriate way to maintain the skillful state? During this week, do this three times. Then, if you can, discuss your experiences with a friend. I think that's really... Um, 
uh, a very important point. We often have a sense of the situation we're going into. It's a fraught situation or it's a situation where I typically get really anxious or angry or, you know, these people make me crazy or whatever. And we, you know, we often sail into them completely unprepared when I think we can really set an intention or an aspiration for how we want to be in that situation. Um, and then see how long we can sustain that aspiration and if we can return to it when we get thrown off balance. So uh, families are wonderful situations in, in which we can practice this uh, stretching ourselves a little bit. Um, and especially because we know the situation usually pretty well and because it's recurring. So often there's some situations we go into where it's never going to happen again. So we have to practice, we have a one-off to practice. Um, but with families, we often have multiple opportunities and different um, situations in which the same dynamics seem to show up again and again. And so we can, um, we can practice, we can experiment and practice different ways of being in that situation. So You've it changes the energy. You've talked about um, setting an intention before we sit in Zazen, and that would be, it's not, you know, a gathering of strangers. No, 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 no. But it that, doesn't have to be. It can be anything, but... Um, that would be me. a situation for, for yeah. trying to um, maintain a state. Well, I think for um, setting an, an intention or an aspiration, yes, but trying to maintain something, I wouldn't try to do that. But I would say... Let's say your intention is to be open-hearted. Um, so then you can revisit during meditation, am I feeling open-hearted? Um, if I lose that open-hearted feeling, how did it get lost? Um, oh, I started thinking about whatever, the election or whatever. Um, the, uh, the ways that we can investigate, which is a crucial part of our practice, um, what unsettles us or distracts us from our intention or aspiration. Um, yeah. This all seems like like activities that people normally don't do. That's correct. And There'd be less trouble in the world if they did, right? Yeah, yeah. Also, like you know, one of my like lifelong retirement projects is to figure out so what could be taught to people that would really be useful, and this certainly would be in that vein. As Absolutely. As opposed to like the periodic table. That yeah. yeah. Even at the start of a meeting, let's say you're a faculty meeting, at the start of a faculty meeting, if you simply say, why don't we each take a moment to check in with our own intention for this meeting? And let people have a moment of silence where they just do that. Just check in. What's your intention? You know? And then you just go around and have like 30 seconds of saying, well, my intention is for us to really consider what the graduate students are going to need or whatever, you know, like, um, I think that would make the meetings go so much better. And I have done family interventions where that was the only thing we did. I mean, I said, before we actually start talking about what your concerns are, I want to check in with each family member and hear what is your intention for this meeting, for this particular, what do you hope will come out of this meeting? And in the process of hearing each other express their intentions, the whole premise of what they were upset about disappeared. And they became, they were totally surprised to hear each other's intentions to begin with. 
because we make assumptions about other people's intentions and even more assumptions if we know them well. So, um, so it was, I, I think it's very helpful to take a moment just to check in. What is my intention here? I'm about to make a phone call. I'm dreading, you know, what's my intention? Who do I, who do I want to show up as? So for the spam caller, you know, you know, this is a person who's sitting in a, you know, stark room, just making a thousand calls an hour or whatever and getting rejected a million times. It's a horrible kind of work. Um, so just acknowledge that. Just acknowledge, I know this is, must be really difficult for you to get so many refusals, you know. Um, then it establishes some common humanity. Yeah. Okay. All right. Seventh factor. Anne had to go. So Donna, I think. Seventh factor, right mindfulness. What is right mindfulness? Here a practitioner abides focused on the body in itself, on feeling, feeling tones in themselves, on mental states in themselves, and on mental processes in themselves. Ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful, having put away greed and distress for the world. The Buddha, Middle Length Discourse, 141.30. When the steps of, of the Eightfold Path are practiced sequentially from right view to right concentration, the journey of practice goes inward to the most intimate parts of our being. Right view and right intention provide the broad understanding for walking the path. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood bring the practice home to our behavior in the world. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration take the practice into the heart to our innermost capacity to experience peace and ease. Right mindfulness is more than simply being mindful. In the Buddha's ancient instructions, sati, the word often rendered into English as mindfulness, refers to the presence of mind needed for a strong, balanced awareness. Mindfulness practice occurs when this presence of mind is combined with clear comprehension ardency and a willingness to put aside preoccupations with things of the world. And when this mindfulness practice is directed toward the four foundations of mindfulness, it is known as right mindfulness. Clear comprehension lies at the center of mindfulness practice, whereas mindfulness allows us to be aware, clear comprehension understands whatever it is we are aware of. Because it's difficult to have a clear understanding when we're in the grip of greed or distress. The instruction of mindfulness practice is to put this aside. When this is difficult to do, the practice requires us to at least let go of focusing on the thing we want or that distresses us. Instead, we begin tracing what is happening in our body, feeling tons and my in the face of our own grief or distress. Practicing right mindfulness is a journey inward. Traditionally, 
Right mindfulness involves attention to four progressively more refined and intimate areas of our lives. These four, usually called the four foundations of mindfulness are the body, feeling tones, mental states, and mental processes. The journey begins with establishing mindfulness of the body, including our breathing, physical activities, and physical sensations. After focusing on the body, we then establish mindfulness of the simple feeling tones of our direct present moment experiences. The feeling tones are the most basic way we experience sensations as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. As these tones come into focus, it is possible to distinguish those that arise due to our contact with the outside world from those that, independent of the world, arise based on what is happening in our mind and heart. So, for example, sensations of light, sound, smell, taste, and touch arise from contact with the sense world. Buddhism includes as part of this the inner experiences that only have a physical source. Distinct from this are the sensations that do not arise from the stimulation of our five senses. These are sensations associated with mental states or moods. They are sensations that can occur independent of what is happening in our in immediate environment. Meditation, for example, can produce pleasant sensations that have nothing to do with the sense world. In fact, <coughs> It is possible to experience unpleasant physical sensations simultaneously with having the pleasure of meditative joy. Being mindful of the distinction between experiences that arise from stimulation of our physical senses from those that arise from our mental states leads to a greater awareness of our mental states, which is the third foundation of mindfulness. Here, what is meant by a state, a mental state is the overall mood or attitude of the mind. This refers to the overall emotional state of the mind as well as the way the mind can feel contracted or expensive, catch up or free. With greater awareness of mental states, the journey of mindfulness leads to the fourth foundation of mindfulness. This is where we have a clear recognition of the mental processes operating in relation to our mental states. This last foundation involves cultivating wisdom about what our minds do to cause suffering and what we can do to overcome this suffering. We learn to recognize the mental processes such as the hindrances that need to be let go of so we can realize a peaceful heart. It also includes recognizing and cultivating the seven mental processes that support the mind to be expansive, tranquil, and liberated. These are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. The last foundation also includes having a clear and direct knowing of the Four Noble Truths as insights that lead to liberation. The 
Reflections and Practices, Right Mindfulness, Week 1, Mindfulness of the Body. What is your relationship to mindfulness of the body? Is it difficult for you to be aware of your body? How often do you practice mindfulness of your body? How is attention to your body beneficial? What are some lessons you learn through careful attention to your physical experience? In what areas of your life would it be useful for you to have more mindfulness of your body? The traditional practice of mindfulness of the body be <coughs> begins by focusing on breath, breathing and intentionally relaxing the body as you do so. Spend a period of time each day outside of meditation, breathing mindfully and relaxing your body. Then engage in an ordinary daily activity while staying centered in awareness of your body, practicing mindfulness of your physical experience. What benefits come from doing this? Week two, mindfulness of feeling tones. Everything we experience falls into one of brief flavors. Something can be can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or not, nor unpleasant. As you live your life, are you more affected by one of these three, or do you tend to be influenced by all three equally? Which of the three has the most influence on your behavior? Which tends to aggregate you the most? What are some of the beliefs you have about pleasant and pain? What wisdom do you have about relating to what is pleasant or unpleasant? The traditional practice of mindfulness of feeling tones differentiates feelings that are of the flesh and those that are not of the flesh. This may be understood as feelings that arise through our ordinary senses and those which occur independent of our senses and perceptions of the external world. Some people refer to the latter kind of feelings as spiritual. Another way of thinking about this is that the second category refers to feelings associated with the quality of our inner life or inner emotional state. So if you have an idea and, you're, um, and you're, you can have a pleasant sensation just from that idea arising, right? It's not coming from out of one of the senses. That's, that's the immaterial. Mm -hmm. During this week, spend time nourishing your inner life. Rather than doing activities that bring you pleasure, do things that bring satisfaction, meaning, or happiness to your heart. As you do so, be mindful of any pleasure or pleasantness that arises in your heart or inner life. The, uh, you know, we talk about the mind as being one of the senses. But is that not included here? It's separated out. So it's separated out as uh, mental states and mental processes. So, yeah. Oh, so, okay. So a thought is more of process. I would say feeling tones are the bridge between our straight up senses and our inner world um, uh, experience. So, so they're kind of the bridge, like you can have pleasant or unpleasant um, sensations from any of the senses, but also from your mind, right? 
So they're, they're kind of the bridge case between the body and the mind. Week three, mindfulness of mental states. Mental states are the general moods of our minds. <coughs> when we repeatedly think or intend the same thing, it can condition the general disposition and quality of the mind. Sometimes this is obvious when we think that we are visibly displaying the mood. With mindfulness, skilled at recognizing the mental state of our own mind. While changeable, mental states are not as fleeting as particular thoughts. Mental states tend to persist for a while. I guess depression would be a mental state. Or curiosity. Or uh, being in love. Infatuation. What are the three most common mental states you experience? What causes these states to arise? <coughs> what causes them to persist? What causes them to pass away? What beliefs or stories do you tell yourself about your mental states? What influence do these mental states have on you and your behavior? What has been your experience of practicing mindfulness of your mental states? A simple way of practicing mindfulness of mental states is to notice where your state of mind fits on a spectrum for expanded, light, and open to contract, uh, contracted, handy, and closed. As you go through the day, take time to be clearly aware of where you are on this spectrum. Notice how and when you shift along this spectrum. Also, take time to notice what your degree of expansiveness or contractedness feels like. What happens to you as you recognize and feel this aspect of your mental state? Week four, mindfulness of mental processes. Mindfulness of mental processes is a wisdom practice because it involves understanding the attitudes, beliefs, and mental behaviors that either bring inner freedom or lead us to become caught up in attachment. What are some of the reasons you get attached or obsessed? What are some of your attachments that you understand so well that letting go of them is relatively easy? What are some of your, I'm sorry, what are some of the psychological benefits you have seen from letting go? What are some of your stronger attachments, the ones you can only let go of with considerable effort? What are some of the things you cling to that you can't imagine being able to let go of? For this seven-day period, spend one day focused on each of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, investigation, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Each day, try to cultivate the factor of the day. To help you remember, write the factor down on a piece of paper and display it in a prominent place. Attempt small but frequent steps to make the factor more present, even at very mild levels. Are some factors easier for you to evoke than others? How does the increased presence of the factors affect you each day? What benefits come from working with the factors? It's a great practice.
So should we write for 10 minutes and then come back? We're a small enough group. I think we can just yeah. be together. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And then come back. But um, Nancy, you don't have the book, but did you get the email today where I found that the whole book is up as PDFs? Oh, is it uh, really? I didn't hear what someone said. What? Oh, no, no. I did not receive that email. Oh. Um, but it's okay. I uh, I guess some of the questions I can, yeah, I have idea what I should try. Okay. So, so that would be 818. Is that a sacrilege to stop a bell from ringing? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, I don't know of any sacrileges actually, but um, no, I mean, we used to stop that way. I, I, I couldn't, my hearing thing wasn't working. Ah. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, we used to stop that way sometimes. Oh, right, right. Yeah, so I, don't, I can't imagine that it would be a sacrilege. Good, good. I've been using this new um, app for the for Zoom that's called eyeglasses. Using it, yeah. Oh, you yeah. got it. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it allows you to zoom in. So yeah, so you can be closer, and um, it also allows you to do some some correction, um, Love it. correction, and make things warmer or cooler, and yeah. <laughs> you loaded in the Zendo. What? Did no, you... and I want to. Um, because I think it'll be very useful. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, it, it, um, I think it'll be, it'll be helpful. I just have to, I haven't had time to put it on, but I, I will definitely do that. Okay. And the sharpening too. Uh, sharpening is good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it saves a preset. So um, you get it the way you like it. And then it saves that. I like um, that. That preset. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting to play with. But also, I like it that you can do more, more of a close-up. Yeah, I was thinking for Dharma Talks, you could you yeah. stay in that seat and have that as a precept and then as, as a preset. preset. Yeah. Yeah, we'd have a preset for talks and then a... You know, and then one for Good. Zazen or whatever. Yeah. Now, before I forget, is, is there a integrated intensive in November? It's under. No. under. Oh, no. take it off. It's, it's a week-long thing. Okay. No, because we're doing the um, beginning of December. We're doing the open intensive. And then in January, we're doing the international intensive. up on the calendar what the, you said there's a december one yeah 
the, um, the, the December one, the dates I didn't, I didn't have exactly. So I didn't, uh, I didn't give any dates, but, um, I can tell you in just a second here, if you want to know. Oh, okay. Um, so it'll be, um, I see they're doing this um, boundless life open intensive. Yeah, that's what it is. It's the seventh to the twelfth. And what's the time on that? Um, let's see. Um, Will that be like an integrated? No, it's open. People can come and go. Oh. And, um, but I, but there'll be breaks built into it. I have to look at what the past open intensive was. And I have to also consider this little puppy. So, um, so there'll be breaks built into it, but, um, there's a, like a writing break, there's meal breaks. And I think it ends, um, maybe ends at six o'clock. I'm not really sure. Yeah. For lab. People come and for however long they want to every day. So 6.30 to 6, I could do now, 6.30 to 6. How's about that for now? Let's do it 6.30 to 5.30. Okay. Okay, great. And I'll take the other one off. Yeah. You could have a film night on that first November. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, so the uh, it'll go through that Saturday, the, the 12th. Okay, I got it. Now, um, so I had a thought about the mindfulness, and that was that, um, so just as a photographer walking down the street, mindfulness would be equivalent to like looking as opposed to just orienting yourself, really. But th the mindfulness he's talking about is not outward mindfulness like being mindful of the world, but it seems more internal. Um, yes. Uh -huh. So he's talking about the, these uh, eightfold path steps move more and more inward. So, uh, and then for the four foundations that recreates that stepping deep, more deeply inward. Um, so you start with mindfulness of the body, which is really concrete, and then it goes deeper and deeper. So as I wrote, I became aware of a, of a kind of a misconception I had that that um, this mindfulness was about mindfulness of the world, ah. as opposed to mindfulness of. And in a sense, it's the same way. It's it's mindfulness of my reaction to the world, but the looking is inward rather than outward. So anyway, I became aware that I was like doing that. Yeah, I think that it's a common belief that, you know, it's like being mindful of what you're eating or being mindful of, you know, walking down the street, you know, of what, what you're seeing. Um, as a part of it, you know, this mindfulness of the body, you're going to realize that the body's having all these sense impressions, right? And that those sense impressions are, um, are being responded to as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral somehow. Um, so, um, so... I think of mindfulness as more like um, taking charge of your mind uh, and, and less uh, some activity that you do. 
And so ultimately you end up mindful of mental processes. And then um, cultivating these seven factors of enlightenment. So that's sort you're sort of in the process of becoming mindful of what's happening in your body and the feeling tones that you have as a result of that. And the mental states that you have are sort of these ongoing conditions. Um, I tend to be anxious or I tend to be irritated and annoyed at things or I tend to be judging or, you know, um, and then these uh, mental processes and then this uh, intentional cultivation of these seven factors. So, so it's, it's in essence, you're taking charge of your mind. You're taking, taking responsibility help, for the quality of your mind. It would help the photographer. Definitely. Absolutely. Because, but so the question is not, you know, what are you looking at, but how are you feeling about what you're looking at? Yes. While you're looking, what are you experiencing in your body? And what are, what's the feeling tone? You know, like it's, um, there's a feeling tone. You're looking at a beautiful sunset or you're looking at a terrible car wreck or you're looking, you know, like there's a feeling tone to it. Um, and then, I mean, I think that it would be a great practice for photography is to have that kind of focus, right? Yeah. Can, can you feel the camera in your hands, the weight of the camera in your hands? Right. And you'd want to transmit that feeling in the photograph. You don't have to worry about that. That's what's going to happen. Uh, or not. Yeah, or not. I mean, that's that's why it's mindfulness. That's why it's not, you know, it's not binary. It's not on or off. It's like we see, oh, this is where I lost confidence in myself. Or this is where I was uh, reminded of someone I'm irritated by. You know, or I, you know, like, um, so... But, we, we, you know, that question as an aspirate, like, like as you're looking at a still life, whether for painting or photography, you know, how are you feeling when you look at this thing? What's happening to your, you? Um, anyway, that was good. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe that some of the paintings that we now revere were considered heretical in their time and people thought they were horrid, you know, aberrations. Uh, the feeling tone was extremely unpleasant. And we look at them and they delight us. Well, we still might see, see it, uh, you know, a lot. I mean, if it's, if it's about war or. Yeah, it depends on, yeah, it depends on your, your own response though. Right. You might look at, uh, you know, something that's about war and be transfixed by the composition of it. How about others, others? Donna? Um, well, I was thinking that I too made the, you know, decided, okay, that this is um, an inward practice. And yet if we're going to be devoting an entire day to each of these different factors of awakening, there's going to be a certain amount of um, the world coming in, three senses and um, all of that. I, I was really taken with the, the statement about um, mindfulness practice occurs 
when the presence of when presence of mind is combined with clear comprehension, ardency, and the willingness to put aside preoccupations with the things of the world. And I'm guessing that putting aside the, you know, that when we're preoccupied with the things of the world, our tension's going out. Yeah. Out. Um, and while, you know, certainly, you know, like investigation, uh, we can do both inner investigation and outer investigation. It seems like it's, it w would be going both ways, perhaps. Oh. <laughs> That's our ending time. All right, this is good. This okay. is really good. So I think next time um, there are, there is kind of a conclusion chapter, but I think we can do both next time. Probably we can, I think. It's not that long. Uh -huh. So that's, I would hope we can do that. And then why not go to the other book after that? Yeah, why not shoot for that? But then um, we better send something out and tell people we'll be going to the Koan book after next week. Because okay. some people probably will want to rejoin. Yeah, well, I um, sent out that this that we just have two weeks of this. Yeah. I'll send something out. Um, yeah, I'll do that in a week or so. Yeah, yeah. Days, yeah. Yeah, so we have, you're thinking we can finish the book next week? Right. Yeah, okay. Two good. chapters left. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay. okay. All right. Hi. Thank you. Have a wonderful week. Yeah. And you'll be awakened by the end of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Because you'll have no, the seven you, factors. You, you'll have those seven factors of awakening. You just told us it doesn't get easier. <laughs> <laughs> it, continues to be, it continues to be an interesting challenge. Let's put it that yes. way. Yes, I like that. Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Good night. Everybody. Bye. Thanks.